These violent delights have violent ends. A line from Romeo and Juliet, uttered as a warning from Friar Lawrence to the young Lothario, that no good could come from such passion. Like a spark to gunpowder, it would likely end in tragedy. He was right. I'm Isla Traquair, and this is the storyteller, Violent Delights. A true story of love, which began as a fairy tale, but ended in a nightmare. A beautiful housemaid to the royal family, swept off her feet by a charismatic Prince Charming. But there was no happy ending. It was a real-life Shakespearean drama. From a castle to a courtroom, the story of Sheila Garvey's demise rocked Scotland like no other. She wasn't murdered, but was she a victim? It's a crime so historic, only a few characters are alive to tell the tale, and I'm tracking them down for what might be the last chance to discover the truth behind the headlines and the violent death of Maxwell Garvey. Nothing. No crime like this had ever happened before. It's a tragic tale. It's got Shakespearean overtures. It was the biggest murder case ever in, in the north of Scotland, ever. I'm back in my homeland and I'm currently trudging through a field in my Wellington boots looking for a key location which I'll tell you about later. Now this is an old case, in fact my parents hadn't even met at the time of the murder in 1968, but it was the first murder case that I ever became aware of because my mum as a young student at Aberdeen University, she and her classmates joined hundreds of other people queuing up outside the High Court in Aberdeen, trying to catch a glimpse of some of the characters, or even better, a seat in court for the trial of the decade, in fact, probably the trial of the century. And my mum was lucky enough to get a seat on one of the most crucial days, the day that Sheila Garvey was in the witness box. And my mum told me all about this later on, and it's been a case that's fascinated me ever since. So as you're going to hear, the headlines were salacious and shocking and you're going to make judgments and assumptions and change your mind and change your mind again. I'm going to tell you now there were three accused, not all were found guilty and they're all dead. No, I have not just given away the story, you have to trust me, this is a complex and winding tale. And I'm not on the hunt for a killer, I'm on the hunt for the truth, the humanity behind the headlines. How this woman who ended up with almost movie star notoriety... What led to her sitting in a dock accused of murder? So strap yourselves in. Here we go again. This is the storyteller, Violent Delights, written, produced and edited by me, Isla Traquair. August 16th, 1968. A police car turns off a winding country road just inland from the dramatic Scottish northeast coastline. They're surrounded by green, the sea obscured by the rolling countryside. They pass a black sign with white lettering in capitals saying West Cairnbeg. Wrought iron twirls adorn the top and bottom of the sign, giving the simple rectangle a hint of elegance. They pass some farm cottages and other buildings before turning right onto the driveway, which leads to an impressive farmhouse. Its size and attractive pink granite stonework make it stand out from the more typical, smaller, grey stone farmhouses in the area. They knock at the door, 
An attractive white entrance vestibule has been added to the building, with windows down the exposed side on the left and large glass panels on the main double doors to allow more light in. Inside, a mother is boiling potatoes in a large kitchen. She's getting lunch ready for her three children, but is interrupted by the loud knock at the door. Three men in suits stand on the other side. She pulls it open and is informed they are detectives. She shows them into the living room, which is large and clearly used for entertaining. The men observe the immaculately presented woman with coiffed short blonde hair and wearing a smart skirt and blouse, despite being at home doing domestic duties of a stay-at-home mother. This is not a conversation to be drawn out over refreshments of tea or coffee. They're quick to inform her that allegations have been made in connection with her husband's disappearance, and they request she attends nearby Lawrence Kirk Police Station with them. It happens fast. She asks if she can retrieve a raincoat from a hook on the way out. She shouts to her eldest daughter to keep an eye on the potatoes. They must be nearly ready. A detective informs her a family member will be attending soon to look after the children. A driver is already in the car and starts the engine as soon as she is sat in the back seat. As they pull away, she looks out the rear window, watching the farmhouse fading into the distance, not realising that this would be the last time she would ever set eyes on West Cairnbeg. My name's Lorna Hughes. I'm editor of the Sunday Mail. I knew Wendy Garvey very well as an adult. Wendy, Sheila's eldest daughter, was only 12 years old on that fateful day. She had a memory of helping to cook the dinner and two policemen turning up at the farmhouse and then the next thing, her mother being taken away. And that was essentially the last time she saw her mother in that house or as part of her life. I think she'd been told by her grandmother and her uncle that her dad was dead and her mum had killed her dad. The following day, the blonde woman, still remarkably well presented despite a long night of questioning, sat before Judge Lord Thompson. And for the first time in 70 years, a charge of murder was read out in the court at Stonehaven a small coastal town famous for its harbour and the striking romantic ruins of Donotter Castle. Sheila Garvey, aged 33, of West Cairnbeg, was being charged with murder. This woman, a mother of three, a former Sunday school teacher and assistant to the royal housekeeper at Balmoral Castle, she'd spent part of her childhood growing up on the estate where her father worked for King George VI, who reigned until his death in 1952. She'd often witnessed the young princesses Elizabeth and Margaret in their casual country attire, enjoying their holidays at their Scottish Highland retreat. She even caught sight of the forbidden glances between Princess Margaret and the handsome Peter Townsend. She later reflected this was her first observation of a deep romantic love. She could have continued a career within the royal household, but was not keen on staying downstairs. She had aspirations of a grander life for herself, which she secured only a few years later upon meeting the man who would become her husband. So what happened in the intervening years that led to her sitting in a dock, hearing her name being read out on a charge of murder? This is Sheila Garvey's story. 
Sheila was a very beautiful, very glamorous young woman when she married Maxwell Garvey and the envy probably of a lot of women of her age at that time in that area. They would have been part of a set, a society that, um, you know, had, you know, a bit of money, a bit of wealth and a bit of power. Sheila met the charismatic young farmer at a dance in January 1952. Aged 18, slim, attractive and wearing a blue dress, she spotted the tall, dark, handsome stranger and approached him when it was the ladies' choice dance. After, he poured her a cup of tea at the refreshment area and said, my name is Max, what's yours? Three years later, Sheila Watson became Sheila Garvey and the couple began their life at West Cairnbeg. They had three children, fancy cars, and later Max bought an aeroplane. It seemed her dream of ruling her own kingdom had come true. Retired journalist Gordon Hay, who was the first reporter to speak to Sheila Garvey years later, says they were the local it couple in the social hub of Stonehaven. Sheila, you've got to remember, was only 20 when she married Max, he was 22, had just uh, followed the heir to West Cairnbeg Farm. She, in her teenage years, had been uh, a housemaid uh, at the Queen's Royal Estate at uh, Balmoral. Uh, and, uh, I mean, she, she was a pretty, no question, she was a pretty girl and a pretty woman. And he was a big, sort of, abulient, um, uh, flying farmer uh, and had money. So she would have been the envy of many of the of her peers around the uh, Stonehaven and the Mairns of the time. It's a small town about 15 miles south uh, of Aberdeen and the oil thing in Aberdeen was just beginning at the time and you know a lot of the small towns round about the city were becoming kind of dormitory towns for the city and were growing in size. Stonehaven was a small fishing port and a holiday resort more than anything but the change was in those days it was the kind of you had to drive through Stonehaven in the narrow streets of the, t the town centre to get coming from the south coming north to get to Aberdeen and to go south from Aberdeen so it was a congested little town with a market square in the middle and whatever um, now there's a bypass goes flies almost over the top of it so you don't go through Stonehaven anymore. It was a pleasant little town. Uh, and uh, But of course, what, what, what we didn't know then was that this little social gathering in the Harbour Bar, uh, uh, of which uh, Max was the... Uh, uh, Max Garvey was a kind of central figure. You know, the wealthy farmer. They lived uh, about four miles south from there into the Mairns, which is uh, the area of the northeast. Uh, at this farm called West Cairnbeg and he was a, a fairly um, glamorous character in, in that area. This was a land of Lewis Grassy Gibbon, some people might, might know, the author of Sunset Song and, and all that and, uh, and he had a, a two-seater aeroplane which he flew out of that old wartime airstrip in Furdon which was as I say, just south of Stonehaven as well. He was he was the talk of the steamy, so to speak, because he used to buzz low over the the uh, the farmlands there, and you know farmers out in the fields and everything. And here was the Max, the flying farmer, <coughs> and uh, 
Stonehaven down at the harbour there, I mean, it, was, it had long gone from being a, any thing, anything like a major fishing port and little fishing boats popped in and out of the, the harbour. Um, uh, and But this was their social circle and the, I think it was a star in, a star bar down at the harbour there and the uh, Max was a central character because he had the money. Maxwell Garvey and his glamorous wife weren't just known on the society circuit. They were also well known to the local police and were well liked, except for the occasional moments of perceived entitlement with regards to flying planes too low or parking their cars carelessly. My name is uh, Ian Gordon and I joined uh, Scottish North Eastern Counties Constabulary on the 15th of May 1965. At the uh, time of the, the Garvey case, um, I was within the CID at uh, Boxburn, which was the headquarters of the Scottish North Eastern Counties Constabulary. Um, I had uh, leaned more towards the forensic side, um, scene of crime, photography and uh, fingerprints. I had just uh, previously been at Lawrence Kirk and uh, I knew Max Garvey from my time, and his wife, from my time at uh, Lawrence Kirk. Back then, serious crime was rare, and most of the efforts of the police were focused on keeping the roads clear. Traffic passed through the centre of uh, Lawrence Kirk, which um, caused a great deal of chaos at the time because there was very little room for large lorries to pass and the vehicles were parked on the street. Then uh, this could create a problem. So there was very much a case of uh, policing there, it was keeping that street clear. And uh, the whole area there was a farming community and uh, the, uh, the Garveys, they stayed at West Cairnbeg. The house um, at West Cairnbeg was a large, a large house, a large farmhouse, and uh, it uh, was a very well-kept um, farm and uh, steading and... Uh, my recollection is that uh, with a lot of uh, men worked on the farm, um, I uh, knew the grieve there um, because he was actually a special uh, constable um, and he used to come out on duty at the weekends um, as special constables did. And uh, so I knew that area. Ian was responsible for renewing firearms licences and checking weapons. Guns were not, and still are not, common in Scotland, except for on farms and shooting estates. From time to time you were visiting the farms, um, and in actual fact, um, I remember renewing Max Garvey's firearm certificate, which uh, necessitated going to the farm, um, examining the weapons, ensure that they were uh, stored securely, and submitting a report on the, the character of uh, the licence holder. You know, when you, you were going to someone's home and, and, you know, you're obviously looking at the weapons, was he chatting with you at that time? Did you get much of an impression of him and his family life? Yeah, he, he, he chatted away and uh, very hospitable and, and uh, courteous. And, and uh, I just remember him as a, as a, a gentleman, really, yes who was obviously seemed to be supportive of uh, the community and, in fact, the police service as well. You've used the word gentleman. I think that is actually a term that you'll sometimes call someone a, a gentleman farmer, which is quite different to the kind of caricature you might have as a, of a farmer. 
Yeah, that's a very good point. I would say he was a gentleman farmer. Yes, I would. Uh, I would say that. But uh, as far as dealing with him was concerned, um, he just seemed to be a, a nice chap. Um, I wouldn't say he was in the least bit arrogant or anything. He was just a nice chap. And what was your impression of Sheila at that time? She was a bit different. Um, my recollection of uh, Sheila was that uh, she used to get her hair done uh, in the village and uh, she would uh, come and drive uh, into the village and uh, park her car just right outside the hairdressers uh, when in fact um, most people used the car park at the side. Uh, but she would just leave her car there, which, as I mentioned earlier, traffic going through uh, Lawrence Kirk um, was problematic in as much as uh, the volume and the size of lorries. And uh, on a few occasions, we had to go into the hairdressers to um, get the car moved. Sometimes she could move it, sometimes we had to get the keys and move the car, because, um, but she persisted in doing that. So would you say that she seemed a little entitled by that behaviour? I something got the impression she was a bit aloof. There were no restrictions, actually, in parking there. But most people uh, use common sense and would park in the car park. Sergeant Bob Grant was another officer who had witnessed Sheila Garvey's unthoughtful parking and Max's occasional driving offences. He was the officer who knew the family best but is sadly no longer alive. On Sunday, May 19th, 1968, he had to deal with something more serious than traffic issues involving the Garveys. He received a telephone call from Sheila, saying her husband had been missing for five days. However, she was certain he was off on one of his adventures with a fellow pilot and would likely return home safe for an important meeting with the flying club that evening. He didn't turn up. Two days later, Sergeant Grant arranged for Sheila to attend at Lawrence Kirk Police Station. She told the kind sergeant that they'd had an argument on the night of the 14th and he hadn't come to bed. And in the morning, he was gone. She found his car at the nearby airstrip, so she assumed he'd taken the plane for a planned servicing in Strathallan. However, Max's plane was still in the hangar. A local farmer seemed to back up the theory that perhaps he'd flown in another plane as he reported hearing an aircraft on the morning of the 15th. Luckily, a detective inspector from Aberdeen who specialised in forensics was in the area that day. He and Sergeant Grant met Sheila and her mother, Edith Watson, at the farmhouse. My name's Alistair Smith. I was a detective inspector in charge of the identification branch of Aberdeen City Police and uh, at the time that uh, uh, Maxwell Garvey was reported as missing. We uh, in Aberdeen City Police had a relationship with Scottish Northeastern counties uh, adjacent to Aberdeen City, as you know. And uh, we did most of their scientific work. It was quite interesting, actually. I was called down to uh, a well-known farmer just south of uh, Lawrence Kirk who had had a large-scale theft of hens. So I was taking uh, samples there because they had a suspect and I thought I'd be able to relate the samples I took to the suspect. So that led me to a conversation with Sergeant Grant uh, which involved uh, Maxwell Garvey and Bob said well let's let's go and uh, look at the place since you don't know it 
So that was my introduction to the, the disappearance of Maxwell Garvey and uh, Bob and I went to the house. I think it was Mrs. Watson who was there and uh, she kindly showed us around the house and uh, we, we made a very superficial examination. I suppose the intent was to decide whether he was in the, in the property or not. And, and it was negative, of course. Mrs. Watson was very pleasant and uh, the, her demeanour was helpful and uh, cheerful. And uh, I, I think at that particular time, as far as I can gather, she, her opinion was that he'd just gone missing. And uh, I don't think it was unusual for her to uh, think that he took unusual absences. I may be wrong, but I think that she was not surprised that he had disappeared. Um, I never asked the question uh, of Sheila Garvey, who was pleasant, but in the background she allowed her mother to do most of the, the conducting around the, the household. I was aware that in May um, 1968 that Max had gone missing. Um, and obviously there was a, a originally a missing person investigation and uh, there was quite a lot of work put into that. We um, knew that he did have an aircraft and he used to fly the, the plane and he uh, was part of a group who uh, went on various trips, um, other like-minded people with aircraft. And uh, during the investigation, um, there was a, a farmer who... Um, had fields and in fact he stayed and was quite close to the airstrip that Max used because the aircraft was kept in a hangar just uh, not too far from West Cairnbeg and uh, this farmer when he was interviewed um, said that he thought he'd heard an aircraft uh, on the runway and leaving about 6.30 um, one morning which was around the time that Max went missing. Um, so obviously that led the investigation in another route. Uh, had Max gone off um, with someone? Had he gone to with part of the group? So there was a, a different sort of um, slant on the investigation. Well, there was a lot of gossip, of course. Uh, I don't know what uh, was the reason for the gossip uh, increasing to the extent that it did so. But I would say that in the area there was two uh, groups of people, those who thought that nothing uh, uh, could have happened to Maxwell Garvey that uh, w was suspicious in any way. Uh, but of course this increased as time went on their, their feelings began to change. And then the other group who thought that uh, he, he had been done away with, that uh, someone had uh, been responsible for, I suppose, murdering or killing him. Over the next few months, there were one or two occasions where uh, Max was uh, seen, well, believed to have been seen, and uh, there was also um, on occasions when there was a body recovered and we had to go because we thought it could be Max. And uh, on one occasion, I remember going down to uh, Stenhaven because there was a, a body recovered on the rocks um, and we had to go out in a boat 
and uh, we went out there to, to look and see what it was, but it turned out it wasn't Max. The body was recovered, but it wasn't Max. So there were one or two um, false alarms. It was a hot summer, and when the harvesting began, some people anticipated the missing farmer's body might turn up in a field. His disappearance did make the newspapers, but not in any great way. It wasn't until Saturday, August the 17th, that the truth about what had happened to the flying farmer began to emerge, the details of which would dominate the headlines for months to come. This break in the investigation was huge, and the person who had set the wheels in motion was a surprise to all, including detectives. It was 59-year-old, God-fearing grandmother, Edith Watson. I learned that Sheila's mother, Mrs Watson, had gone to Bob Grant again. And uh, we, we knew that there was a, a, a large-scale investigation was imminent at that time, and so it proved. In the next episode of The Storyteller, Violent Delights, police are led to the hiding place of Maxwell Garvey's body, a location that might never have been discovered. You had to crawl on your hands and knees. It was fairly frightening. There was a strong smell, unpleasant smell. I was the first sucker to go down into that tunnel. It appeared to me that there was something wrapped. I don't think, in all honesty, that we would have uh, recovered that one. This is the storyteller Violent Delights, written, produced and edited by me, Isla Traquair. There's more information and photographs relating to the case on social media. If you've enjoyed this, then please rate and review on iTunes, as it really helps other people find this story. And if you'd like to offer more than words of support, then click on the new Acast supporter feature in the show description. This is an entirely independent production, and any support is gratefully received. A huge thank you to Nick J. Tyler, who composed and performed all the music, except the title track, which is Searchlight by Cathedral. <laughs>